Every year, on her birthday, Laura gets a letter from a stranger. That stranger claims to know the whereabouts of her missing friend, Bobby. I love you, Laura. But there's a catch. He'll only tell her what he knows in exchange for something personal. So begins Laura's sordid relationship with her new pen pal, built on a foundation of quid pro quo. Something for something. Her quest for closure will push her to bizarre acts of humiliation and harm. Yet no matter how hard she tries, she cannot escape her correspondence demands. The letters keep coming, and as time passes, they have a profound effect on Laura. For she knows, deep down, that she can't trust a single word, he says. No Sleep Podcast presents Dear Laura by Gemma Amore The Final Chapter Four years old. I remember that age. I was near that age when I first met Bobby and first saw you. Now I'm an old man and time has not been good to me. I am sorry I didn't write before. I was put away for something I did, locked up like an animal by people who don't understand what real feelings are. People don't know love, not the way I do. Society judges me instead. I couldn't write from jail. I couldn't risk them finding out about Bobby. He is our secret, isn't he? So I stopped writing for his sake. It was agony for me. But I thought about you every day, Laura. Every single day. They let me out for good behavior in the end. Although sometimes I wish they had kept me inside, where at least I had a bed and hot food. I don't have those things now. My health is not so good. Time is running out for me. Will you mourn for me when I'm finally gone? I hope so, Laura. I mourn for Bobby. We still never finished with Bobby, did we? That's why I'm sending a piece of his sweater. I am sorry there's so much blood on it. I tried to clean him up, but it was difficult, and I got frustrated. I'm worried you've forgotten about him and me. I have missed you. I feel like maybe I love you, although it is such a shame you had to grow up so much. 
I'm sad that you got married, Laura. I thought our connection was the special one, but now you have someone else. I'm not sure I can allow it. Perhaps if you come and see me, we can talk about it. I'm old, as I said. I feel that it's finally time. I would like to meet at the place I buried Bobby. Alone. No police. You know the rule. Join the dots and come soon. Come by 7.30 in the morning, in three days' time. If you don't, I will come after your boy, and I will take him like I took Bobby. And then, I think it is quite likely that I shall die. I'm sick, you see. Don't be angry with me, Laura. I feel good knowing that despite losing Bobby, I have been able to write to you and you know I exist. That must mean something to you too. I think ours was always the real love story, Laura. Not me and Bobby. Yours, with respect and love, X. After the X, Laura saw a list of digits and symbols marching down the paper, a bewildering string of them. And once again, as they had when she was young, they danced and leapt across her vision. Coordinates. Laura? Laura? What is it? Frank looked at Laura over his newspaper, as she sat dumbly holding the letter, falling, falling, the only way being down. Nothing. Laura lied brightly to her husband, folded the letter, and put it into her shirt pocket. Her secrets had grown old and burrowed themselves deep, like a tick under the skin, and they were proving harder to dig out than she could fathom. Frank side-eyed her, but didn't push the matter. It was Laura's birthday, after all, and he wanted her to have a nice day. Frank was like that. He put others before himself as a matter of principle. Doing so gave him a great and lasting satisfaction. She had thought several times that Frank would have made a good priest or vicar. Laura felt now, after years of marriage, as she had felt then when she'd first met him, that Frank was on a mission. He used the accident he'd had as a child as a springboard, diving into a pool of vocation, striking out confidently across the choppy waters of life towards anyone he found drowning. Frank was the sort of person who would die to keep you afloat. She had tried to do the same over the years for others, only it was a much less convincing display than Frank's. But she tried. Later, when Frank went out to run some errands, she read the letter again. Join the dots, X had said. And she analyzed and reanalyzed this several times before it clicked. And then she smacked her hand to her forehead hard in an act of realization. Of course. She dug around under her comfortable king-sized bed for the storage box she kept there. A storage box full of memories, clippings, and correspondence. The letters from X were buried at the bottom of the box, along with her old maps, scraps, and a compass. She had kept it all. Maybe because deep down, 
Her subconscious mind had known this day was coming. She spread the map fragments out across her bed, and then spread the corresponding topographical maps across the floor of her bedroom. She'd never noticed before, but the maps joined together, each edge slightly overlapping to form one huge map of the local area. She had only ever viewed them as separate individual regions, these maps, and never as pieces in a larger puzzle. Feeling as if something were finally slotting into place after many, many years of frustration, she unfolded each letter she'd ever received from X. Rereading them and reminding herself of the contents, shaking her head and muttering to herself the whole time. She'd never taken a step back from it like this, and looked at the letters as a complete entity. She'd only ever treated each one as an incremental step towards downfall. But now, now here on her bed, on her floor, was a finished jigsaw. A portrait of a man. What kind of man? A criminal, she knew that now. A repeat offender. Most likely a pedophile, too, which is something she had never openly admitted to herself until now. What a shame you had to grow up, he'd said. She shuddered as she remembered wrapping a pair of her knickers for him. And the tooth, the hammer, the blood. What had he done with it all? Did he have a memory box, too, full of all of the pieces of her she'd sent him? She realized, as she looked at it all laid out across her patchwork bedspread, that over the years, all she'd done was exacerbate his obsession with her by alternately rejecting him, trying to run from him, and then giving in to his demands. She understood now, with the advent of maturity and the wisdom that parenthood had afforded her, that X had manipulated her from a young age. He had preyed upon her guilt and confusion, and twisted her fear around in his strange declarations of love for herself and for Bobby. And Laura had bought into this fantasy narrative, bought maps, gone on bus journeys, smashed a hammer into her own mouth and pulled a tooth for him, even written back. All grist for his sordid mill. Laura had been the object of X's desire for all these years. Not Bobby. Laura. Laura. And here he was again, still trying to write their story. Still no tears. Laura shook all over, and still, no tears fell. Why can't I cry? Why? Had there been others? She thought it likely. X was obsessive by nature. His letters also had a curious air of being practiced about them, like maybe he had honed his skills on someone before her. Had he sent letters to Bobby in the years before he disappeared? She thought that likely, too, although no mention of it had ever been made by the Evelys. The police. This all needed to go to the police. X was an old man now. He would not be waiting to knock her down this time if she strode into town with a handbag full of evidence. She should take this letter and all the others to the police and tell them what she knew. They would not dismiss her now. She was a respectable age, a mother, a well-liked person in the community. She came with added gravitas. And yet, and yet, she was in her 40s, a parent, a wife, an administrator of a local victim support charity alongside Frank, an advocate for mental health and a child safety awareness campaigner. All of the pain and loss and confusion had been scooped up and poured into better, worthier pastimes than trying to piece together the demented clues that X had left, uninvited on her doormat as a young girl. Laura was beyond all of that now, wasn't she? Yes. This was a matter, at last, for the authorities. 
X was sick. He said it himself. What reprisals would there be if she handed everything in? And yet... I will come after your boy, and I will take him like I took Bobby. The threat dangled in the air before her, and try as she might, she couldn't ignore it. The dissonant chords of long-repressed memory jangled in her mind, and scenes flashed in front of her eyes. A van, idling on the curb. A boy, blonde hair hanging in soft curtains around his face, climbing in through the open door. A shadow, lurking behind the frosted glass of her parents' front door. A fist slamming into her face. A tooth lying in a puddle of gore in the palm of her hand. Envelopes on the doormat. A photo filled with red. He might be old, but he was practiced. Motivated. And he'd been in prison, so he might know people. People who could help him hurt her. Help him take her little boy. He was dangerous. And she believed him. She believed he could do it. He had done it before, and he wanted to do it again. How could she ignore that? Worse, trust the police with this information. And besides all this, despite coming to terms with not wanting to know Bobby's fate, the question of where his remains had been all these years still gaped open like a wound. Imagine if she could find him after all. Imagine if she could bring him back to his family for a proper goodbye. Because the knife still twisted. In rare, quiet moments, where she found herself without a task, all these years later, it twisted, and she felt the ghost of Bobby's hand upon hers. Her lips tingled beneath his kiss, breathy and hesitant. So young. They had both been so young. I love you, Laura. I love you too, Bobby. Laura looked at her worn, dog-eared maps. She saw deliberate red splotches across contour lines, the coordinates from all the other letters, marks that she had made in permanent ink. Her fingers twitched with the memory of scribbling forcefully on that detailed and intricate surface. Carefully, her heart climbing slowly back up into her throat like it used to when she was younger. She studied his last letter and the list of numbers he'd provided at the end. Then, with a marker pen she found on Frank's writing desk, she tentatively marked the final coordinates. And the last vital piece fell into place. Join the dots, he'd said. With trembling hands, she did as she was told, because she always did what X told her to. She began to connect the dots by drawing thick red lines joining each marked position, and gradually, his design became apparent. She saw concentric rings form beneath her hands. Not circles, exactly, but rings like those of a tree closing in gradually, in stages, around a single point, a small area in the vast expanse of the old forest, the size of the tip of her thumb against the map. In the middle of this space, a clearing was marked, with a thin stream bisecting it. The area was no more than 20 feet wide, she guessed from the scale on the map, although distance was hard to accurately judge by her eye alone. And this, she realized suddenly, was it? Somewhere in that area, she would find the man who wrote the letters. Somewhere in that area, she knew she would also find Bobby. She made one final damning mark on the map with jerky, uncooperative fingers. And when she saw what she'd written, she laughed out loud. Because all she could do now was resort to humor, every other emotion in her repertoire having long since been used up. X, it said. 
X marks the spot. The trees sang to Laura as she walked. Tiny, whispering songs that skittered past her ears and rose and fell with the thin morning breeze. A rabbit froze in the path ahead of her, head rigid, eyes dark and wide. And then it ran, white tail flashing as it bounded away into the undergrowth. Somewhere, a jay called out, harsh, mocking. The compass thump, thump, thumped against her chest. Her hair no longer fell into her eyes, but frizzed out into a cloud around her head, humidity, grease, and a night's rough sleep taking its toll. She walked, and with every step she took, she felt taller and colder and more rigid, as if she were one of the very trees themselves, uprooted, marching to war. And then she found it, the place she'd been searching for. Thirty years of her life spent looking, And she knew as soon as she saw it, this, after all, was the land in her heart. The promised land. The place she had been flying towards even when she had thought she was not. It had lived inside her for so long that she was afraid she wouldn't recognize it when she arrived. But here she was, at seven in the morning, earlier than requested. Bloodied, bruised, and cold. A little brown bird, exhausted, migrating north to that one fixed target. She had come, suddenly, to the clearing in the forest, stumbled upon it before sensing a change in the density of the trees and light overhead. Passing from shade to bright, she looked up and saw a window of pale blue sky. High up there, way up in the air, a tiny white plane flew, arrow straight, trails of white chasing behind. Laura took a deep breath and stepped further into the clearing. It was filled with clutter and camping equipment and bags of stinking, rotting garbage around which flies and mosquitoes buzzed incessantly. Sunlight dappled the top of an old blue tarpaulin, mildewed from being long exposed to the elements. It was stretched out from one tree to another by ropes to form a makeshift roof. Underneath this, there stood a sagging fortress of bedding. Mattresses piled up against each other to form doughy walls bed springs erupting from their stuffing in mad, vicious coils. A random assortment of carpet scraps were littered across the ground, and a few sheets of rusty corrugated iron leaned haphazardly against nearby tree trunks to act as weatherproofing. A tattered ground sheet, rubber tires, and large, wind-felled branches completed the structure. This is it. And this was it. She knew it. She knew it in her bones. This was where X was living. Maybe this was where he had been living all of his life, when not in prison. The shelter was not a new structure. Mature saplings thrust themselves up between gaps in the tarpaulin, and honeysuckle vines, wild rose brambles, and ferns entangled themselves protectively around the entire mess in a well-established, thorny embrace. Discarded propane cylinders lay all around, years' worth and a makeshift laundry line hung across one side of the clearing, over which a worn pair of boxer shorts, some black threadbare socks, and a sheet of torn plastic were hung. They steamed faintly as the morning sun gathered in strength and burned away the nighttime dew. She imagined him, hunched over, meaty fists wrapped around a cheap pen, 
writing letters to her from his mattress cocoon and folding them into dirty yellow envelopes while the trees shook their leaves overhead in judgment. This was his home, his turf, his front door. And this was where she would find Bobby. She gently lowered her backpack to the ground, seeing no sign of anyone who could be X. The place was eerily peaceful. But if she had her way, the peace wouldn't last. She slid a hand inside her backpack and brought out the towel-wrapped gun. It was Frank's gun, a family heirloom that had belonged to his grandfather. She knew little about such things, but she did know it had seen some action in the Second World War. It wasn't loaded, according to Frank, and she wasn't even sure it worked properly anymore. But it was enough. Enough to threaten a man and drive her point home. All Laura wanted to do was scare X the way he had scared her. All she wanted to do was see fear in his eyes and fight back. Let him see he no longer controlled her. Scare him away from her life and her family. She didn't want to hurt him. Because it wasn't in her to harm another, and besides, that would make her no better than he was. But she was owed fear. And much, much more besides. Quid pro quo. You suffer, I suffer. She slid the gun into a pocket, eyes constantly scanning the clearing, looking for X. Where was he? Was he hiding? Then she changed her mind and took the weapon out again, deciding she would hold it loosely by her side, a more obvious deterrent there. She found the solid weight of it comforting in her hand. Then suddenly, she heard coughing. Heavy, phlegm-soaked coughing, coming from a discarded sofa she did not notice until that point. Her eyes whipped across the clearing and took a few seconds to make it out. But there it sat, rotting and almost completely camouflaged, a large, lopsided, brown faux leather couch, the outer layer of skin peeling off in large strips as if flayed, bright green mildew filling in the patches exposed beneath. And also there, lying back in the torn and slim upholstery, belly out, arms behind his head, watching, waiting. There, after all these years, was her pen pal, X. Laura moved slowly across the clearing, gun cold and heavy in her unpracticed hand. She approached the sofa, upon which lay the bulbous form of X, and tasted sour bile in her mouth. Here he was, the man who had taken Bobby away, Here he was, the man who wanted her used knickers and sanitary towels. Here he was, the man who had made her pull her own tooth out. Reposed, he looked bucolic, like a fallen tree trunk, a part of the forest. He was dressed in a camouflaged, military-style jacket, splattered with patches of brown, green, and gray. Underneath, he wore a dark blue t-shirt that was too small for him. It rode up above his stomach which was pale and hairy, the belly button lost in a soft crease. Laura felt like she recognized the blue shirt from the day he had attacked her, but she couldn't be sure. Underneath, he had squeezed into poorly fitting camouflage pants, and under those sat two dirty, worn Nike sneakers, with the soles flapping freely from both feet like gaping mouths. She studied him with a distant curiosity as she approached. He had a beard, and a swollen nose. He was dirty and smelled of urine and mud and sweat even from several feet away. 
Mosquitoes gathered around his exposed hands and ankles, but he seemed unconcerned by them, letting them land, bite, and drink without slapping a single one away. Laura took a step closer, then another, then another. The dull throb in her ankle a constant reminder of how far she'd come to be here. She held the gun out before her, rigid, in a warning gesture. X's deep-set eyes glittered in his face. She came to a stop before him, just out of arm's reach. Well, I'm here. X laughed, lazily craning his neck and checking an ancient wind-up watch on his filthy wrist. You're early. No matter. I've waited a long time to meet you, Laura. I don't care. X looked at Laura, and she looked at X. Overhead, the plane disappeared from view, its twin streams breaking up into foamy clouds, then dissipating. The quiet thickened. It seemed, after being so talkative in his letters, that X was not as forthcoming in person, content to let the silence between them stretch out further and further. Laura knew this to be a power play, knew that by withholding conversation, X could better control the situation. She also knew that whoever broke the standoff first would lose somehow. But she was beyond caring. Beyond playing games. Where is he? Where is Bobby? Do you want to see my... my... my scars? X propped himself up slowly on one arm, and then painfully, awkwardly, heaved himself upright on the couch. He lifted his shirt up and showed off his pigeon chest. His gut protruded out from beneath it, distended like a tumor. Laura saw pale, shiny marks crisscrossing the skin between his nipples, and then realized the scars were arranged in the form of letters, a crude inscription that someone had carved onto his body. Pedophile, it read. (coughs) They don't like... People like me in prison. Where is Bobby? X lapped back into silence, breathing hard through his mouth, his face and eyes red and raw. Laura's nerve was beginning to fail. The impetus she'd felt when she'd received his final letter had petered out, and now that the journey was complete, the constant act of moving forward no longer the thing keeping her sane... The fear and doubt surrounding her bizarre situation began crashing in like water through a burst dam. Your hair is going gray, Laura. And Laura found she couldn't contain it anymore. X didn't know where Bobby was. He never had. He was still playing the game, and the game wouldn't be done until she was broken, because that was what he had decided to make his life about. There was no Bobby. There was no end. Only him and her until he died and let her be. And even then she would dream of this moment, she knew it. She would wake in the night, breath stuck in her throat, and see only one thing. X, reclining in his throne, scrutinizing her, criticizing her temerity for letting herself age. And she realized, in that moment, how angry X was with her for not being a 13-year-old girl anymore. How angry he had always been for letting herself age. Having never once cried in her entire adult life, the tears that had solidified like resin around her heart suddenly liquefied 
and ran free. Laura burst into tears, her gun wavering as her whole body shook with the force of her distress. And X sat on his couch, hands resting loosely by his sides, and watched with a small, triumphant smile upon his lips. Then he reached into the collar of his shirt and brought something out, something small and white, the color of bone, her tooth. The tears kept coming, and Laura feared they might never stop. She cried so hard she nearly vomited, mouth open, retching with the force, eyes swelling in tight, face wet with the morning sun. She'd been right. He wore her tooth on a thin wire necklace around his neck. It swung back and forth, and she gazed at it, aghast, remembering the day she'd taken a hammer to herself. The tears kept coming, and then something else made its presence known. A pressurized feeling as if a great bubble of air were rising up from somewhere deep inside. (laughs) Thank you for this, Laura. (laughs) The bubble shot into her mouth and burst out of her, only it wasn't a bubble, it wasn't air. It was a scream. (laughs) It was a scream that had been brewing for 30-odd years, and it propelled her forward as it ricocheted around the clearing. And the gun might not have been loaded, but it was still heavy and solid. She brought the gun down on X's face as hard as she could and kept bringing it down. Until he was no longer smiling. Until his own rotten teeth had smashed and splintered. Until she felt his nose crunch under the butt of the gun. And all she could think was quid pro quo. Over and over. Until she was spent. Afterwards, Laura sat on the forest floor, gathered herself as best she could, the gun she kept a tight hold of, slick as it was with blood and gore. Eventually, she looked over at X, and at the damage she'd wrought. She could see the light flutter of his chest, laboring for air. X was alive but unconscious, and for that she was intensely, unspeakably grateful. If he was alive, then she wasn't a murderer. If he was alive, then she had a chance at a future, and her son would still have a mother. She realized the wetness on her face was no longer from her own tears, and ran the back of her hand down one cheek. It came away red and slippery, and a little swell of cold victory bloomed. She should leave now. She knew. She should leave X here in the woods to live his life in filth, to drink cold-tinned soup through a broken mouth and snore through a broken nose. She had taught him a lesson, given back some of the pain he'd left in her lap. She wasn't proud of it. Or was she? Either way, it was done. So she should leave. But she didn't. Something held her back. One final hesitancy. Bobby. I love you, Laura. And then, as if nature itself had decided to make a friend of her rather than an enemy, she heard something fall from a tree behind her and land on the ground with a hard and distinct thump. Her head whipped around, and the gun came up, but there was nothing there except for a squirrel who had dropped a nut from his place high up in the canopy and was now scooting back down the thick oak trunk to retrieve it. And something else, sticking out amongst the roots of the tree, lopsided, crude, and weathered, a wooden cross. Upon it, a name painted in faded blue, Bobby.
There was bone, barely concealed under a thin layer of soil. It was a shallower grave than she had imagined it would be. It stuck out from the broken ground, white against dark, jagged, broken edges pointing skyward. Laura kept digging with the travel she had packed especially for this purpose, not content with one single bone. I need all of you. Every single piece. I want it all back. All of it. Each part of you. The animals of the woodland watched her from afar as she dug. Frantic arcs of flung earth spraying all around her, her breath coming thick and fast, her eyes bright with exertion, darkening blood still splattered across her face. They watched and listened to the desperate, urgent sounds that fell from her lips as she dug. Every now and then, Laura would stop and extract a fragment of bone and lay it out on a tarpaulin spread out next to her. She felt like an archaeologist, felt as if she should be labeling each sliver and splinter so that Bobby could be reassembled later, like a jigsaw, and in doing so, she could finally hold him and say what she had never had a chance to say when she was 13. Goodbye. It was all she had wanted. That one word. A chance to say it. The trowel cut through the dank earth and brought up lumps of root and stone and moss and bone. So much bone. And she marveled at how many bones there were in a 15-year-old boy's body. Behind her, she heard X rousing from his unconscious state, wheezing and coughing and gagging as if he were choking on a mouthful of fluid, which he probably was. Let him choke. Let him choke and I will not have murdered him. And when he is dead, I will bury him under this tree, and the forest can have him. Or, no, better, I'll just leave him on the floor for the birds to peck at, and the foxes to eat. And they can scatter his bones so no one will remember him. He'll become dust, fragments, like I have. Let him rot into pieces, while I have my Bobby back together again. There is justice in that. Her travel hit something solid, resistant, something larger than bone fragments, but still jarringly white against the black earth. She threw the trowel to one side and used her fingers to clean the surface of it. The object looked smooth and round. She began to scrabble at it like a dog digging a hole, ripping great clots of soil away with her bare fingers, fingernails catching and tearing, skin snagging on tree roots and small sharp pieces of flint. She excavated what felt like a ton of dirt in this way. And then she managed to dig her fingertips beneath the thing, feel the size and shape of it, get a purchase on it, and pull. The soil gave up its final, gruesome secret with reluctance. Laura pulled so hard that she wasn't prepared for the sudden release and toppled over backwards. Behind her, X groaned. But she had no mind for him, only for what came out of the earth which, after regaining her balance, she seized in her hands and held up reverently before her, like a priest with a chalice. Only this was not the body of Christ, not the blood of the Redeemer. Only her friend, her Bobby, the place where his mind and smile had once lived, where lips had been that had once kissed her, where she froze, staring at the thing in her hands, eyes wide with incomprehension. What is this? Laura saw an elongated jawbone, pointed snout, eye sockets that were in the wrong place, thick, flat, grinding teeth that jutted out from a profound underbite. 
and Laura saw horns. No, not horns. Short, stubby antlers, broken off at the roots. And then it dawned upon her. This was not Bobby. This was another cruel trick. And behind her, with a slow and rising glee, came a sound. Afterwards, Laura would tell the police that she didn't know the gun was loaded, which was the truth. She would also tell them that the man she killed had attacked her first, which wasn't. Her statement was long and given in several stages. Her leg had become infected in the forest, and she had a prolonged hospital stay. First, while they treated her body, and then, while they treated her mind, which did the best it could to stay strong, but eventually collapsed in on itself. Laura spent many days in an induced fog, painkillers and tranquilizers and mood stabilizers gradually erasing the details of her crime. But later, she would find out that she had become the thing she feared the most, a murderer. For X was dead, and by her hand. She was, after all that had happened, no better than he. His real name was Stanley, Stanley Aston. He was a known sex offender, and his name featured on an awful lot of lists. It soon featured on an awful lot of television screens and newspapers, too, alongside a dated mugshot of him as a much younger man. Stanley, it seemed, had kept a lot of secrets with him out in the woods. And now, those secrets were unearthed, thanks to Laura. The police found Stanley's camp, and there they discovered his body right where she had left it, splayed out on a discarded couch, a single bullet hole in his head, brain matter baked into the faux leather beneath his skull, teeth and nose broken from her earlier violent assault. They found the animal remains that had been buried at the base of the tree, and forensic examination later confirmed what Laura already knew, that the bones belonged to a small deer. Then, the police searched Stanley's tent and found Bobby, or what was left of him, at least. His skull sitting on an old tapestry cushion balanced on top of a folding camp table, garlanded with a crown of ferns and moss. A large, worn, laminated photo of him was propped up behind. Candle stubs had congealed around its base in a large, molten mess. Subsequent digging efforts around the campsite unearthed the remains of seven other adolescents, three girls and four boys. Anthropologists worked at the recovery site for months, cataloging each bone and fragment of clothing 
and tiny shard of debris scattered across the site. Although Laura knew little of this, swathed up as she was in her bubble wrap world. Seven bodies, one deer, and one young boy's head. That was the bounty of the forest. As summer turned its face to the wall, and autumn came softly in its wake. Laura is much older now, and aware that time is passing at a rate that she cannot control. She finds herself longing to undertake a pilgrimage, and so she walks through the old forest. Her son Robert, who is now a tall, handsome replica of Frank, keeps step alongside her. The hair that had only been speckled with gray when she'd last made this journey is now white, cropped short against her skull for the sake of ease and practicality. Her steps through the copper carpet of leaves underfoot are unsteady, but no less focused on the goal. She is headed north, to Stanley's camp, to pay her respects to Bobby. Because she's had a lot of time to think over the years about one thing in particular— Bobby's head might now rest in a small, silk-lined cedar box in the town cemetery, but the rest of him has never been recovered. Laura knows that he is here, in this forest. The parts of him that touched and held and ran and walked in step with her now subsumed. What remained of him after Stanley separated his sweet head from his body has long since rotted, composted, fed the soil, and brought new life into the world. Laura feels a small comfort at this, and hopes it will not be long before she, too, becomes part of the complex tapestry of greens and browns, of pines and larches, oaks and birches, rhododendrons and eucalyptus that reach high and thick over her head and drag their fingers through the sky. For when she dies, she wants to be burned and scattered in this place, so she can join her friend and they can mingle down there in the cool earth and catch up on all that has happened since they last saw each other. Mom, look. Robert pats her on the arm to get her attention, pointing to a patch of undergrowth framed with skinny young silver birch trees. There, a deer grazes, a white mark on its face. Beside it, a fawn, paler, emblazoned with the same white patch between its eyes. Mother and son. Laura smiles and closes her eyes, And absurdly, the memories that eluded her as a young girl come back in that moment, clear and unblemished. And she sees Bobby as he had been on the day he'd first kissed her, nervous, serious, and pale, white blonde hair lifting in a faint breeze. She feels the touch of his hand on hers, as if he is standing right there next to her instead of Robert, and she recalls his smile. The remembrance is fleeting, but crystal clear and she is glad for it. And then, like a little brown bird flying north, she continues, walking on in a straight, true line through the forest, always on and never back, because that is not how we survive.
Dear Laura was written and adapted for audio by Gemma Amore. Produced for the No Sleep Podcast by Phil Mykolski. Musical score composed by Brandon Boone. Starring Kristen DiMercurio as the narrator. Mary Murphy as Laura. Matthew Bradford as Bobby. Mick Wingert as Frank. Kyle Akers as Robert. And David Cummings as X. This concludes the No Sleep Podcast production of Dear Laura by Gemma Amore. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyright for Dear Laura is held by Gemma Amore. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.